What happened to music that meant something? Like the Who at the Kingdom or Kiss at the Coliseum. Where is the Misty Mountain Hop? Where is the is the smoke on the water? Where is the Iron Man of today? Black, white, woman, or man, everybody's a star and everybody should be themselves. Sly Stone not only wrote those words, he lived them. I'm Jim DeRogatis. And I'm Greg Cox. We speak with Cynthia Robinson and Jerry Martini, founding members of the Family Stone. Plus, Jim and I review this year's Oscar-nominated songs and review a new album by alt-country singer Lydia Lovelace. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. This is Sound Opinions, and Greg, you and I are both huge fans of Sly and the Family Stone. You were lucky enough a couple of years ago, 2008, to talk to the man. What kind of shape was he in then? Well, at the time, Jim, he was uh, trying to mount a comeback, and it sounded like, you know, he was going to have Cynthia Robinson, Jerry Martini in the band. The Sly Stone group was getting back together. Sly seemed on top of his game. He seemed energized. He seemed desirous of coming back because his music had been sampled so much. And then canceled a bunch of shows and back into hiding. It's a sad story, Greg, but we're going to remember the man and the band when they were both on top. But first, some music news. Jim, that must remind you of one of your heroes, Brian Eno, with music for airports, but uh, it's actually music for subway stations. James Murphy of LCD Sound System. Well, what's he been up to since that band called it a day a few years ago? Among other things, he's been brainstorming ideas like this one. You know, he's complained about the cacophony of the turnstiles at the subway stations in New York City for years. He's been a resident there for decades. And he says, you know, I'm going to do something about this. They make this unpleasant beep and are all slightly out of tune from one another. I'm going to put them in tune. So the busier a subway station would become, the richer the harmonies would be every time somebody uses their Metro card to plug into one of those turnstiles. And from cacophony, you will have music. These turnstiles would have notes set in different keys, and each subway station would have its own series of notes, so you'd know exactly where you were in New York. Now, the MTA officials in New York City are saying it'll never work. It's going to require a lot of time and money. They'd have to temporarily take out some of these 3,200 turnstiles and slow down the station. But Murphy's idea is one of those dreamer type of uh, (laughs) think big young man ideas. And he broached that when Jim and I talked to him on Sound Opinions last year. So music for films, music for theater, production, coffee. No music for airports. Uh, no, not yet. Right. Uh, what? What else, James? What? But I'm what trying else? to do music for subways, so that's, that's my. That'd be, yeah, but you'd have to be really loud, right, to get over the subway no. screech. What else? No, what I'm else? serious. I'm, I'm trying to do that. <laughs> Are you really? For the for the turnstiles, I've been fighting for now 14 years to try and do this. Wow. To make all the subway turnstiles make music. What would it sound like? I would make. I want to make every station in New York have a different set of. Uh, dominant keys so that when you people who grow up will later on in life always have, they might hear a piece of music and be like oh that's like Union Square wow. um, so when you go through the turnstiles there'd be a little thing that would make a beep of a certain note and it would it would have an uh, basically a little 
random note generator that would be based on a percentage. So the the root note would be a higher percentage of going off, and the third and the fifth. And during rush hour in the bigger stations, it might it would hopefully will make like a really beautiful piece of music. It's such a brutal city, and I love it, but. I think one little gift of kindness would be really nice. Maybe you have to start small and start with the PATH trains, you know, uh-uh. and from Jersey, <laughs> right? And then New York can get jealous, which is actually— Right. Now New York will just get snotty about it and be like, we don't need that. Yeah. <laughs> think about public transportation, though, as a means of music education. Now everybody in New York City will know what a C-sharp is or, you know— No, that was a B-flat. Yeah. You know? I just think it would be, be amazing to, like— when you when you get there, you'd hear a couple notes when the station gets called, and you wouldn't even have your you couldn't you could have your active brain turned off, but you'd hear the notes of your home station and be, wake up from your book and get off. That's really cool. Of course, I'm envisioning in New York, everyone's reading on the train. But. <laughs> it's also kind of like Close Encounters, right? With the musical yes. key and Truffaut goes exactly. Up. That's brilliant. That is that's a, yeah. I, I love that idea. Greg, KISS may still want to rock and roll all night for the benefit of their bank accounts, if for nothing else. But they will not be rocking or rolling at all at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction ceremonies in April. The group, which has been around 40 years, I mean, that's just astounding, can't agree on which lineup should perform. Now, you know, I mean, ask any longtime KISS fan. It's only one lineup, Ace Freely, Peter Chris. You know, you got to have the cat. you got to have the star child, along, of course, with the mainstays of Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley. But oh no, you know, there's been bad blood. They haven't performed in that lineup for like 13 years. Simmons and Stanley want to play with Eric Singer and Tommy Thayer and people still are saying, who? Right? As far as that goes. So there'll be no kiss at all. They don't want to compromise their artistic integrity, which would be a first in four (laughs) decades of kiss history. That's a rare 1967 recording of I Ain't Got Nobody For Real by Sly and the Family Stone. It's the Lodestone Records single that helped the band win its epic records deal in 1968, leading to the landmark release Dance to the Music. Now that song's one of almost 70 tracks on a new box set called Higher that celebrates Sly and the band's contributions to music. And we're talking about big hits, everyday people, thank you for letting me be myself again, family affair, it's an influence that can still be seen and heard today. You know, Sly Stone and his multiracial co-ed septet from Northern California, I mean, that was really groundbreaking back then, of how a band should look and how it could sound. Bridging rock, funk, Motown R&B, soul with Miles Davis jazz, it was all in that stew. 
And this band had it all. I mean, virtuoso musicians, guitarist Freddie Stone, bass player Larry Graham, drummer Greg Arico, keys player Rose Stone, and trumpeter Cynthia Robinson, along with sax player Jerry Martini, plus one of the most charismatic frontmen in music history. But Greg, in 1975, this charming star who stole the show at Woodstock and Dick Cavett dropped out of public life. Drugs had taken a terrible toll. Since then, there have been occasional glimpses of Sly's resurgence, but for the most part, the legend lives on only in the recordings. So we turned to two of the core members of the Family Stone, Cynthia Robinson and Jerry Martini. We spoke with them recently and began by asking Jerry about his role in forming the group. I was the official nudge. I used to just go on the radio station and bother him, and, and him and I played together in a couple different bands before, and uh, we were the backup band for his singing group, too. And he was just my friend. I used to go be amazed. I'd go over his house in, in San Francisco, and he would pull out his book of songs, and I would just, as soon as I could close my mouth, I was so in awe, you know, I... I just went home and vowed never to try to write again, you know, after I saw what he was doing. I was part of the team, and I was the guy who had the station wagon, and I'd go pick up Larry and Cynthia for our first gig. And we played down in Losers North. We'd all come in together. It was it was really a unit. What a unit, though, right, Jerry? I mean, in terms of, you know, you Absolutely. look at Cynthia, Sly's brother Fred, Larry Graham, Gregorico, yourself— did it occur to you, multiracial co-ed band, not something you saw every day in that period, or even now, for that matter? In your dreams. Yeah. <laughs> that was it. Did well, you kind you of... Know, you know, it, it did not not for me, because uh, uh, I played in school, and there were, it was multiracial, yeah. you know, uh, musicians in, in the bands in uh, junior high and high school. But mm-hmm. this was an ideal well, that Sly believed in, right, Jerry? Because I heard he had to get between you and some Black Panthers who thought you shouldn't be in this band. Well, they knew I shouldn't be in the band, you know, and they was about two inches away from whipping my booty, you know, and uh, and Sly just, he, Sly used to save my ass all the time. They really wanted him bad, and Sly didn't want to be no part of no renegade or, in, like, not renegade, but uh, a unit that, that preached so much hate, okay? There was a lot of hate in the Panthers, and... They had a lot of points. There was a lot of good people that belonged at that organization. But Sly, he had compassion for everybody's uh, plight in those days. Yeah. But he didn't want to be a part of the Panthers. He didn't, uh, he didn't want somebody to tell him who he can have in his band. That's why when people start booing me the first time I played at the Apollo Theater, he stopped the whole thing. You know, and he made me play by myself. <laughs> <laughs> but they didn't look close enough. And Sly taught them that they should maybe look inside a little bit, you know. Yeah. And uh, so when I was playing, I I grew up listening to the blues. I grew up befriending Sly at a young age, and I marveled at his genius. Complex band, mix of all these cultures. The music, too, reflected that, that uh, 67 debut album, well-titled, A Whole New Thing. I want to give the horn players some, because the horn lines on advice, for example. You know, not exactly novice horn lines. Your 
the fact that you were kind of touching on country and western and I cannot make it, that Latin feel and trip to your heart, the more sophisticated level of pop that in, in a song like I Hate to Love Her. I hate to love her. Nobody knew what to make of this record, right, when it came out in, in 67. Who is the nobody? You, you see what I'm saying? It's, the nobody isn't, isn't really the people. Mm-hmm. The, the, the nobody is usually somebody in the, up in the office. The record company executives yeah. did not understand it. Yes. They yeah. would bring us people they wanted to sound like. So they said, why can't you sound like our other actor, The Fifth Dimension? And Sly said... No way, man. <laughs> we, I mean, we respected them. We loved their yeah. Aquarius, and they were cute, good-looking, and their harmony was perfect. But it was all the harmonies back then were all parallel harmony. And Sly hated parallel harmony. He hated triadal stuff. You know, he was the first pop guy to really bring sevenths and ninths and, and thirteenths and, and all that stuff into it. The, uh, the people that understood him were the other musicians. We were a musician's band. You were harmonically innovative, but also the mix on those records, where Sly was putting the bass guitar and the snare drum front and center, almost even above the vocals. I, I've heard a lot of hip-hop producers talk about how radical that was. Yeah, well, you That's know... why they copied it. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, if you, what I loved about his writing is that he, he didn't write bass lines for a conventional bass player. A lot of stuff is very melodic. I know a lot of people talk about him writing a song where the bass player paid one note, but you could take that rhythm section and just make a whole new song out of it, which has been done. Well, I can Tina Turner did Bold Soul Sister with that. I'm a bold soul sister. talk about the complicated nature of the first record, the musician's record, as you describe it so well, Jerry. In 68, with Dance to the Music, did, with, that, with that album, did you feel like Sly was making a turn? Like, okay, I've got to make this a little bit more accessible to, yes. to people? He told me. He says, I'm still going to make, it's still going to be innovative, like, because we were the first ones to have it be like, okay, we do Larry's part. He introduced everybody in the band down there. He said, I'm going to give them something that I know they can all understand. So, not everybody. I was willing to listen close enough to understand our first album, mm-hmm. starting with the record company executives. Every gig that we went to, they enjoyed it. They appeared to me to enjoy it because we played most of the stuff on stage. You know, and that was one of the things that Sly said he, when he was recording, he wanted to be able to reproduce it on stage. So a lot of new material getting tested out on the road before it actually made it on the record, and that's the way you sort of hone these uh, these songs. Yeah. In terms of that recording process, though, Cynthia, i got to ask you about Dance to the Music itself, that track where you and Jerry get the shout-out in the song a couple of times. Cynthia and Jerry got a message that says, 
And then you're credited with ad libs on the record. And and your response to that line was was what? All the squares go home. <laughs> <laughs> Did you come up with that on the spot, or was that something you've been thinking about ahead of time, or how did, how did that well, come up? Well, uh, no, it's just Sly running down the song before we uh, attempted to record it, and uh, like in the beginning, get up and dance to the music. He said, you know, he just all he said was, "Don't sing it." Mm-hmm. He didn't want me to sing it; he just wanted me to talk. And that took a couple of takes because I kept forgetting. <laughs> she got that signature voice, though, you know. Sly, he could pick up on things. That when I played my clarinet on Dance and the Music and the little subhook thing, that was the accident. I just happened to have my clarinet there, and it was snowing outside. And the union guy was going to come. So he said, bring an instrument. So I brought my clarinet. <laughs> That's great. And he walked by, and he heard it. He put it on the thing. Obviously, funk became huge in the 70s, but a lot of people credit that song with starting uh starting that whole genre of music i mean do you, do you look back and say oh yeah that that it, that was a different sound that was a left turn uh that became a whole whole new style of music uh, absolutely i mean i you well, know the, the drum beat that he did became um the basis for hip-hop you know that later on that you listen to rap music and say damn mm-hmm. that's our stuff and the rappers <laughs> will tell you that sure you know oh yeah you, you guys have been sampled so much it's ridiculous That's a little bit of the Roots track Star Pointro, which samples the Sly Stone song, Everybody is a Star. We'll have more memories from Family Stone members Cynthia Robinson and Jerry Martini in just a minute here on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. And later, Greg and I give our own Oscar awards. You sticking them with the heavy machinery, wonder how you lift it up. We only 17 and like everybody, he want to shine. Young brothers on a grind, holding something in his spine, bowling for Columbine. Stressing to me how it's all about a dollar sign. Think the way you out of line, out of sight and out of mind. Up against the clock and damn near out of time. The tipping point is arrived, and that's the bottom line. To all my people, the stars, it's our time to shine. Let's get them up high. Come on, go all star. Get down with y'all. To the ladies in the house, proud of y'all. You got the roots cool with the sound of course. High, lift them up high. Okay, go all star. Get down with y'all. To the ladies in the house, proud of y'all. You got the roots cool with the sound of course. High, lift them up high. Oh, y'all, ain't it strange how the newspapers play with the language? I'm deprogramming y'all with uncut slang. I know some people's in the party armed and dangerous. Twist some cool shoe pain, I'm going through changes. A grown ass man, I done paid my dues. Learn the rules, little homie, you could be one too. No, ain't no telling what he gonna do.
Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRogatis, and that's Sly and the Family Stone's 1969 hit, Thank You for Letting Me Be Myself Again. It's the original mono version, part of a new Epic Records box set called Higher. We've been talking with two of the founding members of the Family Stone, sax player Jerry Martini and trombone player Cynthia Robinson. Greg, songs like Thank You always have been inspiring to me lyrically. You know, in this era of the Woodstock Nation and this utopian community ideal, half a million strong, the hippies will rule the world, right? All that stuff. Sly is saying, no, everybody, every one of you, be yourselves. You are the star. To me, that's what endures. So I wanted to know how important that message was to Sly. Here's Cynthia Robinson. Well, just the fact that he said it at all meant that it meant something to him because he, he didn't waste his time with the uh, idle conversation. Mm-hmm. If, if and, and when he mentioned it, it wasn't like a command. It was just him talking to another human being. And this it was something that Freddie and Rose understood because they'd been doing this, you know, many years. He was so into the acoustics of the uh, venues that we played that he knew exactly how to set, well, he knew how to set my mics and what type of mics to use for my horn mm-hmm. in the studio and something different on stage. Well, you know, he had that background as a producer prior to Sly and the Family Stone. He'd been doing all these bands, the Bo Brummels, the yes. Mojo Men, Bobby Freeman, which I believe you played in for a while, right, Jerry? I I did uh, most of his uh, recordings. I, I just was a part of the band in mm-hmm. there. He knew his way around the studio. He was a multi-instrumentalist. Uh, he had a vision. Right. He had a vision for this group. Yeah. Yes, he was absolutely a visionary person. You know, he also had the ability to control large groups of people one way or another. He could stop a riot or he can start a riot. Mm. He had that power. Well, you know, there's a riot going on. Is is a No, deep... that's what you call it. Ah. <laughs> Was it not That's perceived... what you call it. Well, I think it's a brilliant classic. I mean, one of the greatest albums ever made. But the complexity and the depth and the shadows that seem to hang over it. What? Why are we wrong, Cynthia or Jerry, uh, if that's not how it really was perceived at the because time. nobody stays the same through life you know once you you're doing a lot of positive things and and you know you're dealing with people that are throwing negativity at you all the time and so up the line your idea about how you're going to deal with them is going to be different now because you're not going to keep on throwing them things your way while they're keep on knocking you while you down hey, here's a cookie so, you know you what I'm saying? So uh, you do change. You get you catch on. You know, like I caught on to the, the positive and the negative thing with him. You know what I'm saying? You catch on. So you do things a little bit different if you want to be around. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it's a, it's a dark time, right? I mean, Woodstock is followed by Altamont and, and there's riots in the streets of the states. And Dr. Martin Luther King is shot and Robert Kennedy is yes. shot. You can't leave because your heart is there. But you're, you can't stay because you've been somewhere else. You can't cry because you look broke down. But you're crying anyway because you're all broke down. It's a family affair. It's a family affair. 
There was this level of empowerment in a lot of his songs about, you know, everybody's a star. You know, you go from an album yes. like Stand in 69 where he's singing about everyday people and he's singing about everybody's a star and you can make it if you try. And then that beautiful single with strings, you know, adding the sophistication to his arrangements in, with Hot Fun in the Summertime. You go from that vibe in 69 to 18 months later, and there's a riot going on. You know, in that 18 months, you went from this kind of powerful, uplifting kind of music to something like Thank You for Talking to Me, Africa. It's clearly a lot darker shades. Did you see Sly sort of losing some of that sense of everybody's a star, I want to take you higher, to, you know, it's a pretty bleak world out there because we've experienced some of the things you were just describing. I mean, did you see his his sort of vision for what the group was change? No, I just saw it as an extension after you learn some things. And you're just speaking about things that other people notice, too. His music was always about truth. You know, what he felt was actually going on. The brave and the strong survive. Out and down. Ain't got a friend. Don't know. There's still positivity. It's just not lilies and tulips. Also, when he moved to Los Angeles during that 18-month period, he was around a totally different musical environment, different social environment, and there was more things to write about, positive and negative, but he wasn't thinking negative when he wrote it. But it's not the same as being up here in the in the Bay Area in Vallejo. I, I ended up moving down to his house for about eight months. What did you see there? Because there's all sorts of stories about Sly sliding off the rails at that point with, with, with drug use, and that affected his mood and affected the way he was able to make music. What well, if, there was a few around. L.A., are you kidding? Sure. <laughs> you know? uh, just understand that Sly's the leader of the group, and he told me once when I told him that, you know, people ought to know that this wasn't you being late this time. You need to, mm-hmm. uh, somebody needs to tell them that, you know, this was some other member of the group or uh, some other situation. And he said to me, when you're the leader, you take the credit or the blame. A lot of things that were he was blamed for was not his. Mm-hmm. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and we're talking with Cynthia Robinson and Jerry Martini, two of the founding members of Sly and the Family Stone. 
Now, Jerry, just a year after your triumph at Woodstock in 69, the band took a big hit after that show in Grant Park in Chicago, the one in July 27, 1970. You're going to play this big free show. But before you made it to the stage, a riot broke out. Now, there's a lot of conflicting reports about what happened there. Crowd was apparently restless. There was over 100 people injured, including several police officers. But the media was saying that the band was late or refused to perform. And it's been speculated that the incident inspired the album title in 1971, There's a Riot Going On. But clearly, there seemed to be a lot more going on than how it was portrayed, right? Yeah, they needed a patsy, and we were it on that one. Well, I, I don't know the real reason for it, but when we were coming into you know, heading for the hotel in town. And Slide told us, just when you get to the room, just chill out and relax, and we don't have to be there until 5. While we're riding, it comes on the radio, and the radio says, uh, yes, Lion Family Stone will be here at 4 o'clock. I said, Slide, did you hear that? He said, yeah, yeah, but don't pay no attention to that. See, I got the contract right here. And he showed it to us in the back seat. Mm-hmm. So we got there earlier then we were supposed to be there so the car can get parked and we can get up, you know, to where we could get to on the stage. But they had already started riding and some guy came out of there with his head split open, blood pouring all down over his body. And he was he came over to the limo and he said, if I were you guys, I wouldn't even go up there. They jumped up on the stage and, and broke up the equipment and, and jumped on the band that was playing at the time. So... It was already in progress. This was supposed to be a free show. You know, a lot of people say... That, then why would they complain it? Yeah, well... <laughs> good question. It, it, it is a good question. A lot has been hung on, on that incident and, and, and on, the, on the group. And Sly got this national reputation for being a guy who wouldn't show up at shows, you know? That it impacted our band. Mm-hmm. We had to put up a $50,000 bond to play anywhere after that. And back then, $50,000 was like about... 300,000 now. Yeah, it's a lot of money. You know, and and it wasn't our fault. And we, there was a lawyer that was suing the city of uh, of Chicago for what they had printed about us on the front page. So they printed a retraction. I think it was on page 47. Like <laughs> yeah. that said, it wasn't their fault. But it, the damage was already done. done. It, it actually really impacted our career. And it... It never really caught back on as much as it could have. You can make it if you try. You can make it if you try. Cynthia and Jerry, I'm going to put you on the spot. I want you to each pick a song that from that era that... You love, and tell tell us why. Well, for me, the thing that just, I don't know, just drove chills all over me was uh, We Love All Y'all. Unlike the colonel and his plan Unlike the landlady's new old man Unlike the town with its restrictions
the way they enunciated and they, that song was sang just so simple that it seems like it would be easy to do vocally. But uh, to put that emotion into it while you're singing the lyrics, it just uh, it blows me away. Mm-hmm. Jerry, what about you? With me, it was, it was not um, our greatest hits album, which I loved, and all of our big hits. What the song that really grabs me still does is a song called Color Me True. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Color Me True, to me, it just says, this is what it's about. It's about, I mean, do you take credit for somebody else's cooking? Do you litter the park when you think nobody's looking? Come on now. <laughs> mm-hmm. Color Me True. Take credit for somebody else's cooking. You think of the park when you think nobody's looking. I was never a, a top ten hit or anything. I think it could have been. I think it still could be. been talking to Cynthia Robinson yeah. and Jerry Martini of uh-huh. Sly and the Family Stone. It's been an honor, guys. Thanks for coming on Sound Opinions. Thanks Our for pleasure. having me. Me too. And now we want to hear from you. What are your memories of Sly and the Family Stone? And where do you hear its influence today? Call 888 Coming up on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX, Jim and I roll out the Oscar red carpet and we'll review a new release from alt-country artist Lydia Lovelace. And it looks like I'm the queen 
The wind is howling like this swirling storm inside. Couldn't keep it in, heaven knows I tried. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott, and that is the ubiquitous tune, Let It Go, from Greg's favorite movie of, of the last decade, Frozen. <laughs> That's the Adina Menzel version. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago and how there's two versions of that song on the yeah. pop charts. Why are we talking about this song again? Greg, the Oscars this year have more relevance in terms of pop music performance on the charts than any year since 1984. This is according to the Bible of the music industry, Billboard, keeper of the charts. Back in 84, all five nominees hit number one at some point or other, and Stevie Wonder took home the Oscar for I Just Called to Say I Love You. This year, three of the songs have been huge hits throughout the year. There's four songs nominated for Oscar's Song of the Year, Best Original Song. Now, we will bow to the Academy for choosing movies, right? Okay, because we don't, we don't do movies. Mm. We have opinions about them, but we don't, we don't do them. But I'm not going to trust the Academy to get it right for Song of the Year. So we <laughs> thought we would parse these four tunes and say who we think should win. Some of you at home or on podcast are going to be hearing this already knowing the winner, but we're handicapping it in advance of the Academy Awards. Yeah, this is uh, an example to me, Jim, this particular song, Let It Go, of a big showy show tune. Uh, You know, that bridge, the strings, the orchestrated piano power ballad. You know, when I have a nightmare about the ultimately worst Diane Warren power ballad, (laughs) this is what it's going to sound like. I mean, Diane Warren didn't write this song. Kristen Anderson Lopez and Robert Lopez wrote it. This is the duo that brought us Book of Mormon. Yes, How are yes. they turning out this schlock? And it is a cliched piece of fluff that you would have heard on a Broadway soundtrack from maybe the 50s or the 60s just translated to the 21st century for a kid's audience. It's just awful. But it's not a very good song. No, it's just awful. I like, however, the next nominee we're talking about, the Moon Song from Her. It's from Karen O oh of the Yeah, Yeah, Yes, and she recorded a version of it, apparently at her dining room table, as a duet with Ezra Koenig of Vampire Weekend. Now, in the movie, Scarlett Johansson and Joaquin Phoenix perform the song. She, of course, is a computer, and he's in love with her, right? I don't like that version as much as Karen O's oh version, which is intentionally very quiet and whispery, as if someone uh, is talking to you in the middle of the night on a cell phone or something like that. There's there's a really intimate sense to the song, but it's barely even been distributed. It's really hard to find online. There's been no official release. There's no big push to win at the Oscar. So I think it's absolutely going to be in the dustbin. Nobody's going to vote yeah. for it. I'm That was a little bit of Karen O, the Moon Song, from her 
Now, Jim, you like this song a lot. You think it should be the winner if you were the panel, right? Yeah, I'd give it the gold statue for sure. <laughs> well, the one I would pick is the Pharrell Williams song, Happy, from Despicable Me 2. That's a mouthful. I didn't know there was a Despicable Me 1, but, uh, you, you know, I'm, know? I'm just don't pay attention to these wee-oh, things, I guess. Wee-oh, wee-oh, wee-oh. What, are you living under a rock? Yes, I do when it comes to children's movies, I guess, you know. But Pharrell actually does a pretty good job with this song, and I actually think it is the best of the four nominees. I'm not going to defend the lyrics as being great art or anything like that. It's clearly designed for a younger audience, and it's a happy song, right? But at the same time, the way he layers those hand claps in this song, it's like a varied rhythm track. There's two or three layers of hand clapping. Also, the backing vocals, the way those are orchestrated. This reminds me of Stevie Wonder when he is in sort of a lighthearted mood. It reminds me of that sort of production and that sort of joy and ebullience. It's a danceable piece of music. It's a happy piece of music. It's well titled. I, I think it's the best of the munch just from a purely rhythmic standpoint. I don't know what you're hearing. I think Pharrell phoned this one in. He did it in about 15 minutes, just like the screenplay for Despicable Me 2. So well or- far inferior to the first movie. Well, you, you can speak to that, but I think it's just so well arranged and orchestrated I would give the award to this one. Now, Greg, the fourth nominee, we have to talk about this. You two took a break from trying to save the world and end hunger and make us all love one another to record a tune called Ordinary Love from Mandela, Long Walk to Freedom. Now, I don't recall that movie making much of an impact at all here in the States, but the Weinstein Empire, Mm. those Oscar-loving guys who are always going after the statues, are behind this, and they've been hyping the heck out of it, hosting a private party in Hollywood, have you two perform the song and it's just you know it's so awful it's a kind of <laughs> plotting do-goody song about a wonderful man but it's typical you two flag waving i thought yeah it's kind of a cliche of a cliche you two song right i mean they've been cranking these out with regularity over the last 15 years here's a little bit of uh, ordinary love from you two That's a little bit of Ordinary Love by U2, which already has won a Golden Globe for Best Song. But for Greg and me, it's a tie between Ordinary Love and Let It Go for the worst song of the year in a movie. Greg would go with Happy for the Best Song by Pharrell Williams. I would go with The Moon Song by Karen O. But tell us what you think. What were the best movie songs this year? And did the Academy get it right? Give us a call at 888-859-1800. 
You're listening to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRigatis, and that is Lydia Loveless with a song called Wine Lips from her new album, Somewhere Else, album number three from this Ohio singer-songwriter. She grew up in rural Ohio on a farm. They had 200 cattle, horses, goats, I mean, the real deal. Her father was also a musician who booked concerts at a local bar, and Lydia was in a teenage new wave band with her two older sisters. When she was 13, she played bass in that group. Now, she branched off as a solo artist a few years later. Her first album came out in 2010, The Only Man. It was a very slick, country-pop-sounding recording, and she talks smack about her own (laughs) first album to this day. She was not very happy with it. She felt like she was manipulated in the studio by the producer and the musician and it really wasn't her deal. But in 2011, she got it right, at least by her reckoning. She signed with Bloodshot Records, the label out of Chicago, and got a much rougher sound, much more in proximity of who she really is, a singer-songwriter with a rock sensibility and a touch of a country twang. It was called Indestructible Machine, got a lot of great reviews, and now she's stepped up with her third record called Somewhere Else. Let's play a track from it before we review it. It's called Verlaine Shot Rambo from Lydia Lovelace on Sound Opinions. Well, Verlaine shot Rambo cause he loved him so.
break, that is Verlaine Shot Rambo by Lydia Loveless from album number three, Somewhere Else. And we had her as a guest on Sound Opinions a while back when she was touring behind the second Bloodshot album. She is just a hellraiser, mm. a barn burner. And here she ups the wattage even on where she was then. At a mere 23, she is nobody's fool. She's got opinions. She's going to lay them on you. She is so self-empowered and proud of who she is, but not a goody two-shoes, all right? She talks about doing drugs in the club. She's talking about taking on an ex-boyfriend and putting him in his place by comparing him to Chris Isaac and how smarmy he was trying to seduce her with Chris Isaac songs or referencing those uh, symbolist poets, you know, Verlaine shot Rambo and wishing she had a relationship that intense, hopefully without the gunfire, okay? Mm -hmm. I want to take every 15-year-old, 14-year-old girl in America and play them this record and say the heck with Taylor Swift. This is who your heroine should be. She's just fantastic in the personality and also the knowledge of pop history, uh, dropping Tommy Two-Tone quotes into a song Mm -hmm. or ending the album with that wonderful cover of Kirsty McCall's They Don't Know. You know, th- this girl digs deep, and she really gives us the goods. This is a buy-it record. Yeah, Jim, I loved Indestructible Machine in 2011. I-, I wasn't expecting an album even better than that one so soon after that record came out. Somewhere Else is a big leap for Lydia Loveless. The theme of the record is this notion that love can drive you crazy. I mean, it is an extreme emotion. And a lot of love songs we hear are like, it's a sweet emotion. No, it's not. You know, there is pain associated with love. And she gets at the heart of that. You you know, sometimes it can drive you to want to hurt a person and to possess them at all costs. We've heard this in the music of people like Loretta Lynn or Hank Williams or Lucinda Williams. It can make you pick up a gun and do insane things. And she's talking about this in a song like Verlaine Shot Rambo. She admires that depth of passion, and she wants to see it in her own life. You know, that voice of hers, I mean, it sounds like it's kicking you in the shins, but at the same time, she's got this vibrato tone to it that underlies the poignance in a lot of these songs. There's an ache at the heart of a lot of these songs, even when she's mad, you know, even when she's angry, even when she's contemplating picking up that gun. band does a great job of complimenting what she does. It's a kind of a no-frills thing. The guitars get all messed up. There's a little bit of twang in there, but it's basically a rock album. You mentioned the pop touches, the Tommy Two-Tone reference, and the Kirstie McCall cover. That kind of broadens the palette a little bit, but at the heart of it, the songwriting and getting diving into these messy emotions and not being afraid to talk about what you find there, being absolutely honest about her emotions. I think this is one of the best albums of the year so far, and it's a buy it for me.
So two very enthusiastic buy for Somewhere Else by Lydia Lovelace. You can also check out the videos of her performance on Sound Opinions on the last album at soundopinions.org. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we have Alan Toussaint, a real New Orleans master, sitting at the piano and showing us how he wrote so many masterful songs. As always, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. Sound Opinions is produced by Jason Saldana, Robin Lynn, Anthony Martinez, and our intern, Jake Smith. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800. New messages. Hello, this is Ari from Winfield Collin. About the uh, last episode with Deltron. Great episode. Love that band. Great topic about sci-fi and music. It'd be a good episode to do like a top ten sci-fi band or song show. Dr. Octagon. It's a really great way to start with the whole sci-fi rap thing. Now my helmet's on. You can't tell me I'm not in space with the National Guard, United States Enterprise. Diplomat of swing with aliens at my feet coming down a rampart through beam on the street. Then uh, David Bowie. Man waiting in the sky. He'd like to come and meet us, but he thinks he'd blow our minds. There's a star. And obviously the greatest, Sun Ra. He's got to be the one that you have to start with. You're on the spaceship Earth. You're on the spaceship Earth. And you're outward bound. And you're outward bound. Destination unknown. Destination unknown. Destination unknown. But you haven't met the captain of the spaceship yet. You haven't met the captain of the spaceship yet. You haven't met the captain of the spaceship yet. Love the show. Great band. Thanks for doing what you're doing. Bye. And you're outward bound. Destination unknown. Destination yeah, my name is Frank Green. Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. Regarding the sci-fi theme, definitely ELP's brain salad surgery has to be the top of the line for original sci-fi music. So I just want to throw that out there. Uh, thanks a lot.
my favorites. Right up there with Deltron 3030. Anyways, rock on, guys. Still listening to you. Have a great evening. Hi, this is Chris. I live in beautiful Logan Square, Chicago, Illinois. And I just wanted to talk about science fiction in music. And I wanted to recommend a band that is a little bit under the radar called Neptune Massive. It's a two-piece Denver-based band, and they basically managed to create the perfect soundtrack to a slightly hazy wood panel-lined old stock and and cheese puff stinking basement from 1983. It sounds like the soundtrack to a Philip K. Dick novel. I just thought you guys would check it out, especially you, Jim, and your prog-loving heart. All right, great show, guys. Keep up the good work, and I look forward to your next episode. Bye-bye. No more messages. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.